0: It's becoming more normal for us to interact through screens and face to face. We're getting more familiar with a person's Instagram or Facebook feed than we are with their hopes and dreams. Let's get off this and bring back the art of conversation. Listen in as I go long form with inspiring people. I hope this encourages you to put your phone down and just talk. I'm Chris Dempsey, and this is the Wouldn't It Be Cool Podcast. Hello, my beautiful people. Welcome back. Wouldn't It Be Cool Podcast. Chris Dempsey here. Oh, business out of the way. Uh, Wouldn't It Be Cool Podcast at uh, gmail.com. Wouldn't It Be Cool Instagram and Facebook. And please reach out and uh, leave me a review, leave the podcast a review on iTunes if you would greatly appreciate it, as always, Um, as is your listening to my show. Um, All right, well, this week, my friend Tina, Tina Godfrey Hurley, um, geez, what to say, Tina's got a pretty crazy story, um, and you're going to hear all about it. But she is one amazing and beautiful woman. Um, you're going to get some perspective. Um, Tina is super clear on her uh, on her thinking and her methods of uh, dealing with life and and getting through what she has had to get through and continues to get through. Um, nothing but upbeat, positive person cannot be beat down, will not be beat down. Um, she, uh, lost her, uh, lower leg to amputation. And she'll tell you all about it. Um, super smart. I can't even do it justice. so I'm going to let her do it. um, I guess that's it. Um it all speaks for itself. It's a really good conversation. Definitely had a good time sitting with Tina. Uh so sit back and enjoy. Get ready. <laughs> Perfect, because we're recording.
1: Oh, (laughs) hello, hello. (laughs) Hello, I was in the airplane in St. Thomas, and I was like right here against it, and it was providing all this extra feedback that was way too close to the the microphone in the airport in St. Thomas. No, in the airplane that was. I I flew in an airplane in St. Thomas. And, you know, the, the whole, like, plane is going and you're trying to, like, figure out because you can't hear well and you're trying to figure out where the microphone should be and it ends up in your mouth. So, so it's well, like this you when you're talking. Mi-
0: why were you on a microphone in an airplane? Because you home?
1: have headsets that have uh, microphones because of all the ambient noise. So the way that you communicate in the airplane is... To,
0: like, the person sitting next to you? Oh, yeah. So there's, oh, like, weird. four
1: of us in the airplane and you all have headsets that have microphones because otherwise you'd have to scream across the plane to somebody else because of all the props.
0: So this plane is holding like nine people.
1: There was actually four. Oh, wow. It was like a whatever that's called that holds four people. A Cessna? It's, it's like yes, the, only <laughs> it's no, no. the only word.
0: That sounds reasonable. It's a puddle hopper or a Cessna. Private
1: jet, but one that yeah. isn't what you would imagine Trump flies. Yeah, 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 I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> private plane. Yes. Different than a private jet. Yes. Yeah. That's funny. Was that just recently?
1: Got back last Monday.
0: Yeah a Which week ago also why you look tan
1: mm-hmm. that and also the good weather over the last three days and the jeep top that came off and my yes. allergy and religious indifference to SPF <laughs> your, moral, your moral aversion <laughs> famous last words yeah. melanoma here I come yeah. and you know better Tina I know so much better but that doesn't cause action changes sometimes isn't that sad I like the smell of burnt skin is that strange? Uh yeah yeah nice. I like my skin to smell sunburnt a little bit Uh oh, okay that kind of burn sun kissed not like peeling uh, off yeah you know I,
0: we all love that yeah
1: but I, I like that better than the smell and the stickiness of SPF yeah so you just make choices yeah my choices are summer
0: long term are, are short term right.
1: <laughs> my choices are I'd rather not slather that white stuff all over me and take my chances with uh, the long- oncologic long-term. workup that's to ensue. Oh, man. And, at but least you, I'm connected to the system.
0: Yes, exactly. You do know the terms. <laughs> um, but um, what is your, uh, so never, you never wear sunblock. It's weird how this conversation just well, got. I got know to- since
1: we're starting here. Yeah. I uh, So I did buy a, I was encouraged by the overly made up uh, woman at Sephora <laughs> to buy a CC cream, which is different than a BB cream turns out. Don't know why, but it has a little bit of extra SPF and moisturizer oh, in it. Okay. So I do apply that in the morning first thing. So in theory, to more I, than your face, just like my face and underneck. Okay, the old like chicken little thing underneath yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, that's it.
0: Yeah, you yeah. You got a lot so in of theory, I thing. do put
1: it on. Right, but and what's your uh, what's your nationality? I'm a mostly. Yeah. So I've got some Cherokee Indian yeah. and Armenian. I list those because they're more cool yeah. than like the Canadian and. Uh, I don't know, Swedish and yeah. there's a bunch. Yeah. Like if they did that DNA test, it'd be like six pages long and but- 1% African. Cause that's on everybody. Yes. Everybody that's Caucasian has like 1% African. They can't rule that out. It's
0: actually, it's funny. Um, a friend of mine, um, just recently emailed me. We grew, we kind of grew up in the same town and she is a brown skin girl. She's like African American, but mm-hmm. she has these like gr- green eyes. um, and, uh, and she's, you know, you know kind of, you'd, you'd describe her as a light-skinned, you know, black girl. And she, uh, but she just had her ancestry sort of test done. And it turns out she's more Irish than she is, like, African You just wonder, descent. somebody that behind
1: the, the lab coat is just laughing at, like, the, you just wonder how specific and sensitive these tests are Yeah. show me the studies I don't I know. know my sister was 1% African and so was three other people that I know that are Caucasian that had theirs done um, so I just you, you just wonder about the how real how good are these tests well did you get it done I didn't okay I didn't because well, I that would be a good test why could, well, how would it change no no was, because if you
0: things? you have the same parents your so sister she, oh no she has a different yes yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. if my brother and I did it it would be interesting to compare it right yeah
0: So there you go. You could do your own little
1: data. I've got bigger fish to fry right now. You sure? (laughs) Just a few. Just a few more things to shake out that may be more prudent to take care of.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, here we are. We did it. Um, You recall when we were going to do it before... And you texted me and you said... Mm-hmm. Are you on air guilting
1: me about bailing? No, not at all. No,
0: it's <laughs> no, 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 All right. I am uh, merely discussing Uh-huh. The, uh, the why. You know, the... Uh, the um, you were not in a good space.
1: No. You were
0: in a down...
1: Yeah, down, so down. I think when you are acutely undergoing anything, you have to sort of like take some time to regroup and figure out your trajectory, and how it is that you want to approach situations, conversations, anything in life. And I think particularly something where you're trying to relay any kind of message, it just wasn't the the best space to come from, because Mm -hmm. I was still digesting the acuity of what had happened, didn't have a lot of processing time. And also, when you're, you know, acutely operated on, you're under medications, and that alters the way that your brain chemistry works and the way that you think, and I usually want to kind of be free from some of that so that you can think through things a little bit more logically and more soundly represent yourself in a way that you feel is uh, authentic. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Understandable. I'm back. Yeah. You're back. I'm, <laughs> I'm back. back.
1: Here I am. Um, well fed. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> uh,
0: Starts with food. Well fed and hydrated. Yeah. <laughs> also true. Um, i kind of trying to decide what, since we just opened up that can of worms, I'm also trying to decide where to uh, where to begin Um, because you have a great story of uh, strength and you know perseverance and optimism I think that's what made me sort of say that is because like optimism is a big part of who I am perceiving but um, but you were sad that's what I was picking up on like um, you said all that stuff just now that you know uh, around kind of um, saying it wasn't the right time and I was picking up just like sad. Yeah, I think think when you go through anything, your
1: ups and downs and your all-arounds and um, you want to come, not necessarily from a high point to be able to describe what you've been through, but certainly just at least a neutral point. I think that Mm. when you're in a low-low it's it's Mm. good to recognize those things and learn from some of those lessons, but if you're, you know, you always want to think about what what have I gone through and what are the messages that I want to portray or Move, you know, pass on. Yeah. And coming from a, a low spot where you're still trying to really digest what your thoughts are and work through them isn't a time when you want to relay them. Yeah. Like, you know, there's a process where you need to work through and then project. Yeah. So um, I think that things were good up until that point. I think we had a date on the books. And then yeah. I found out pretty urgently that my leg had to be re amputated. And then I had pneumonia and sepsis. And uh, everything sort of just came out at once and snowballed. And then I had to sort of like unroll from that. Off. Yeah, the wheels yeah. came off. Not so much. I mean, you get used to that kind of situation. At least I have over the last three and a half years. But um, they just your wheel gets a little bit shaky, and and you want to like level that out first before you keep driving.
0: Yeah, no, I totally get that. I would have felt the same way. It's hard to sometimes. It's sometimes just hard to rally.
1: And I think sometimes it's also hard when you're living in things that are sort of emotionally charged to also relive them at moments where you want to just kind of recreationally diffuse Mm. and distract. Mm. And so by verbalizing everything that you're going through at a time where you're not necessarily as emotionally concrete as you want to be can make the process of verbalizing it more painful than it otherwise would be. And so it's also an act of self-preservation in some sense. Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, Well, let's hear about... um Tina. Um,
1: who? Who's Tina? The open-ended questions are always the tough yeah, yeah, exactly. ones, right? Yeah, I just sort of
0: ask questions then you just go yeah,
1: for like three to five minutes. I know. Uh, who is Tina? So who is Tina now? Who is Tina then? No, who's... Uh, then,
0: then. Tina. I
1: don't even know like, where you grew up. Yes, we can back up. Yeah. I grew up in southern New Hampshire... And so I guess I did know it was New Hampshire. I made the wild leap to Durham, University of New Hampshire, for <laughs> undergraduate studies in exercise science. And then I made the, again, large leap to Elm Street, Manchester, to the Mass College of Pharmacy for PA studies. Right and then started practicing medicine in um, in Manchester at Elliott Hospital for right. a few years, and then over to vascular surgery at Frisbee after I was diagnosed with my vascular condition. Right. Uh, avid... Gymnast, exercise enthusiast, yeah, personal so you, you, trainer. What town did
0: you grow up in again? What high school? Uh,
1: Nashua and then Merrimack. Okay. So I went to Nashua High School and then 10th grade or 11th grade I transferred to Merrimack High School. They had a co-ed cheerleading team and I was sort of convinced I wanted to do a collegiate cheer which you needed to kind of have some co-ed experience with because down south you can get some scholarships for it. Mm-hmm. So I had expanded my horizons and went to a different high school for that because my father lived in a different town. Mm-hmm. And uh, then decided to just stay local for whatever various reasons. Usually, it was related to silly, you know, boyfriends and things that kept me local. Oh, yeah. Which, in hindsight, wasn't the best decision, <laughs> but ended up being no. great because I have a good network of people around. Yeah, yeah. Serendipitous, but uh, yeah, just very athletic. Very. Yeah, I wasn't
0: uh, sure if it was gymnastics or cheer, but it both. probably started with gymnastics. I yeah, guess, so I was yeah. a gymnast
1: until I think fourteen. And then you know, puberty hit, things change shape size and your ability to navigate around mm. bars and beam and stuff becomes really challenging yeah, and I, I just bit one. it so much I couldn't handle the mat eating yeah. the mat anymore and decided to go to gymnastics or, or from gymnastics to cheerleading. Yeah, yeah. And you're kinda of glorified as a cheerleader because you can tumble and so All automatically right. you're in yeah. because they need good tumblers. And so I started doing cheerleading. At both high schools, and then for UNH when I went and an all star team. And oh, cool! Had blown out my knee in, um, in college, and then transitioned into coaching after I had had a couple knee surgeries on the right side. Nice and uh,
0: nice coaching, I think is cool. Not blowing out your knee, that's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: it was a few times that I had the knee surgeries six actually. And uh, yeah, so just continue with athletics, CrossFit for a while, started at CrossFit New Hampshire. One of my good friends got me into it after uh, I was in PA school and I was out at the bars, and he'd seen me out a couple of times and just said, you know, you're better than this. Come to the gym. And I just mm. got hooked immediately. Nice. Sort of addictive personality, and, the per- you know, the community is amazing. And uh, started getting pretty good at that until it was challenging to kind of walk fast or jog at all, and that's when this whole sort of mm. diagnosis begun. So you
0: were working out um, at CrossFit and kind of going hard. Um, when you started noticing that,
1: yeah. So I was I was getting really good, or what I thought was really good at the time, naively. And um, any of the workouts that had Olympic moves, you know, barbell moves or gymnastics moves, I would do. I would excel. But if there were any workouts that had very short, even short runs or jogs in them, mm-hmm. I'd stagger my calves. Both of my lower legs would just seize up. My left much more than my right, and I couldn't physically continue on. And so I made excuses, you know, oh, I don't have the right shoes or. I didn't eat enough bananas today or like yeah, whatever yeah, it is that you yeah. tell yourself. And then at some point it kind of declared that it wasn't going away or getting any better. So I went to an orthopedic doctor. And I think that this was like six years ago now. And he did compartment pressure testing, which is this kind of like what sounds like an archaic, gruesome test where you basically run on a... They stick needles in your legs into all the four compartments in your lower leg. And then they have you Can run you on a treadmill.
0: you a, a compartment...
1: Yeah, so you've got uh, fascia, so you've got muscles and tendons and things in your, and arteries and veins and nerves in your lower leg. And then in your lower leg, specifically, there are four compartments of muscles. So you've got like one anterior in the front, one laterally on the outside, and then you've got two compartments in the back, one that's deep inside the leg and that one's that's superficial and close to the surface. And each of those compartments are essentially wrapped in like a connective tissue, and that's called fascia. So mm, each of those mm-hmm. are four compartments. Okay. And they were testing me for compartment syndrome, which basically means when your muscles engorge with blood, it self-asphyxiates. It cuts off its own blood supply because it engorges beyond the space that the fascia oh, allows yeah. for, mm-hmm. and that creates symptoms that can last, you know, a few days. Is it to,
0: almost Is it almost uh, um, sort of like constricted? Like it yeah, gets so, so the muscle gets slower, where there's exactly. no more flow? I, yeah, exactly.
1: Okay, okay. And so they, you know, tuck your... All the pressures with a needle, and then they have you run on a treadmill and they check them all again mm. um, right after, which you can imagine is not fun. I
0: know. And
1: <laughs> yeah. And they said, you know, yours are elevated. So you have this exertional compartment syndrome, which is fairly common in young, athletic, you know, pretty muscular people. We're going to cut you from knee to ankle. We'll open it up. We'll open those compartments. But, you know, the success rate's like 67%, like two thirds of people get better, one third don't. And, um, we can get you in for that whenever you want. And I was like, well, that seems a little aggressive, scars, or... At this mm-hmm. point, I was, I don't know, mid-20s, and it was an aesthetic concern for me, and I was thinking, well, I'll just tone back what I do. I'll just not do the things that cause it to be an issue and just kind of wait it out for a bit. Maybe it'll go away. And I started working at Elliot Hospital, transferred all of my care to Elliot because you're incentivized when you work in a big hospital to actually go to their own providers, because you get a financial oh, yeah. incentive. And... Finally after two years it just got so bad I had to see somebody again and you know started with a orthopedic at Elliott Hospital and she said we do smaller incisions. And we can do this, you know, what's called a fasciotomy where they cut the fascia, they open up the space, so that their muscle has more room to engorge, so that your symptoms are supported. Was it
0: was it a, a function of being a different hospital and or a function of more time passing and slightly like? I think it's technology. just that it was a
1: it was a different physician. That just different uh, people have different practices. If you yeah. have a small incision, you have to blind cut. Yep. under the skin and some mm-hmm. physicians just aren't comfortable with that because you can cause nerve damage mm-hmm. and others do it and it's just a matter of what they've practiced like and what their comfort level is she was comfortable doing a smaller incision so for me that was luring because it was mm-hmm. aesthetically more pleasing mm-hmm. and um at the same time which is actually a good thing my mother had just had stents placed in her arteries and because she has plaque in her arteries atherosclerosis. And I had said just at this point naively of vascular issues, it was sort of a field I didn't know a lot about at the time. I said, you know, could it be vascular? Just before I go through this big procedure. And she said, well, very rare things it could be. You know, I can certainly send you to someone vascular to get an opinion because peace of mind is important. Mm. And then when they clear you, you can come back to me and we'll do the fasciotomy. And I said, okay. So I saw a vascular surgeon at Elliot who astutely diagnosed me with popliteal artery entrapment syndrome. Um, basically at rest I had full pulses and then when I pointed my toes down on both sides all of my pulses in my feet just completely went away you couldn't you palpate them both, sides. both of my feet, both of my legs oh, okay. yeah. yeah you couldn't get any pulses below my ankle and so mm. he said I think you have an entrapment somewhere in your calves that entraps your artery um, and so we have to do some confirmatory testing first to figure this out so they sent me for CAT scans they saw that there was um Blockages, both of my arteries behind my knees, two centimeters above the joint lines, completely occluded or blocked when my calf was contracted, just at rest, just squeezing my calves. Mm-hmm. So they took me back and said, you have this condition. It's rare. Um, we are not the guys. We, mm-hmm. I assisted with one in fellowship. And <laughs> uh, so if I were to do it, it would be me. The other surgeon here, your orthopedic, there'd be like all of us would be on board to try to figure this out. Um, so if you want to go somewhere to a tertiary care center, no hard feelings. Yeah. He's and like, I, <laughs> I wouldn't
0: want me doing it on me. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Pretty much. Um, but I was really, it was nice that he was humble enough to say yeah, that. Absolutely. Cause I, unfortunately I don't, you don't see that too often. Yeah. So I was in search for the guy for six months or so. And I landed at Leahy hospital um, and the chief of their uh, service had seen five or six cases, none of which were mm. atraumatic, meaning um, cases that were not caused by like a significant accident that stopped the blood flow in the oh. legs. So this was there's six types of popliteal entrapment. The first four, anatomic, meaning um, there's something anatomically that has been the way that you've been built that just pushes on the artery and over time that causes inflammation and blockage of that artery because of scar tissue. Yeah. And they should go in and they can identify that with MRI or cat skinning Take that thing out, and then the impingement's gone, and then in theory you're supposed to be able to get better. Then the last two are functional, where uh, the combination of whatever your neuromuscular recruitment does to cause contraction causes an impingement, and that's much harder to replicate because if you think about testing or even intraoperative exploration, you're in a static position because you're paralyzed Mm. under sedation, and so you can't replicate contraction even if they put external stimulation on your muscles it doesn't do what your brain does for contraction so the first three surgeries that they did was uh to just debulk the area so they started gently and then by the oh third God, surgery a,
0: so I'm, I'm understanding it like trial and error yeah like they would literally do a go surgery in, to take, see what happened yeah oh, go in Jesus. take
1: stuff out how do you feel go in take more stuff out how do you feel
0: how do you feel like months later
1: yeah, right? usually within Month? like two three weeks you, you kind of start to get oh, a sense they could start
0: testing it once you start walking yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, because really it was symptom dependent I yeah. could tell immediately once I started walking whether or not it was going to be a success or not and um, the third procedure that they went in for they took out a lot, like probably almost half of my lower leg and um, they had to bypass my artery using seven centimeters of my arm at that point because my artery was so inflamed and scarred down from the chronic impingement that they're They didn't think there was enough blood flow getting through it, even if they took stuff out of the way. So then they did the bypass and the debulking, and it didn't make anything better. Mm. And so then it was, they said, well, we don't really have much more to offer you because really at this point it's just vascular bypassing and the consideration of limb loss down the line. So you can go back to your primary surgeon, and they can do the bypass because it's closer to home. Uh, So then I went back to the original guy, and they... Took vein from my leg, the same leg that was affected, my left leg, and bypassed the leg um, from like above the knee to below the knee. And within like three or four months, as I was planning my wedding, they uh, it blocked off again from what's called intimal hyperplasia, which is scar tissue, like scar tissue that basically develops. And um, so then they had to take me back fairly urgently three weeks before my wedding, and patch the upper and lower ends of the graft using more vein from my left leg and then two days later they found out that the whole center of the graft was also blocked so they had to take all of the rest of the vein from the left leg and bypass the whole thing.
0: Do these become like when it what, are they? are they uh, semi-emergency when they're seeing something like that? Yeah because cause if you
1: don't fix the graft and the graft goes down then you have to get I mean it's much more extensive they have to really regraft the entire thing Mm. so the idea is to try to catch the graft before it goes down completely Mm. so at that point I had the ultrasound on like a Thursday and I was in surgery by the following Tuesday so it was fairly urgent and then um, after the third surgery that week which was three weeks before my wedding I had hemorrhaged from my wound one of the stitches must have have popped Mm. and so I hemorrhaged they had to take me back in for urgent surgery to fix it Miraculously, I was still able to get, you know, get to the wedding and get through all of that, and uh, and it worked okay for about a month, yeah. six weeks, and then it started blocking that intimal hyperplasia again. And it was at that point in December of 2015 that we started to discuss the option of, um, you know, limb salvage and the option of quality of life improvement with actually amputating. Mm. So the next two procedures they did that were in December of 2015. And then in uh, February of 2016, were endovascular, where they actually go into the artery via the groin, and they go inside and snake a uh, Mm -hmm. wire down, and they blow it up with a balloon. And that provides temporary patency or openness of the artery. Um, Isn't that what a a stent is? It's similar. They can deploy a stent via that method, but a balloon also can open up an area that's tight, and stents are only really approved to go in certain locations in arteries, It's not good for behind the knee because the knee bends a lot, Mm -hmm. and stents can break and kink and Mm -hmm. coil, and so that's not an ideal placement for a stent, but they did a drug-coated balloon, which helps to try to prevent recurrence of that scar tissue and and clot formation, and uh, so the last one they had done was February 2016, and by April, the whole graft was down again, and so it was then that we made the decision to try to regain some quality of life and just stop the saga of the left leg and um, proceed to amputation. So then it was the search for trying to find who was going to be best suited for that because there's multiple ways you can amputate. There's a you know, trans-tibial amputation where you cut through the bones or there's one that's called an ertal amputation where you actually cut through them and take the distal fibula, which is the outside bone of the lower leg, and you turn it horizontal so it ends up making a U of bone and the Benefit to that is that you can actually weight bear on the end of that much more than a usual amputation so that the socket doesn't have to be so tight because with my compression issue, the tighter the socket, the less blood flow that I get. So we uh, ended up down at Yale with a a great team and a really good limb salvage expert that did the ERTL amputation in July of last year.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, it was like 11 surgeries? Is that what it was? The
1: amputation was 10. And then oh
0: no, I, I even meant up to the decision to
1: amputate before the decision to amputate was nine. Oh nine. The yeah, the amputation was ten, and then I ten fell. Ten
0: surgeries for amputation.
1: Yeah, yeah. For in two and a half years. Yeah. Wow. You know, you try to do everything you possibly can because I think at the end of any process your goal is to just not not have regrets yeah yeah, and so you have to figure out what's your limit and if you you know look back at any other amputee i mean i've i've been following so many amputees after all of this and and it's a wonderful community of like resilient humans just Um, phoenixes everywhere and i mean some people some of these vets that come home have had 32 procedures to save their limbs and the only regret that they had after they finally took it off was that they hadn't that they had you know hadn't done sooner Uh, but you just you have to get to your limit where you feel like you're at peace with the the elective or semi-elective option of taking your leg off for me that was nine and uh, then I fell in the hospital I had a complicated post-operative course when they had done my amputation where one of the nerves just was firing and causing really severe calf cramping. So it's kind of like the worst calf cramp you ever had, but you didn't have an ankle to stretch it. Hmm. And it led to me being on very, very high dose medications in the hospital that caused me to be delirious. So you just don't really know what's going on. And uh, it's almost like a, an, an Alzheimer's patient that's just sort of out of it. Um, and I had stood up to try to walk and I didn't have a leg and I landed right on my leg and it caused... Um, What's called a necrotic pressure wound It basically pulverized all the tissue On top of the skin Or where the skin was supposed to be And it caused just uh, Almost like a a really deep Large scab That um, just sat there like a rock For six weeks So then they had to take me for a debridement Which is just a fancy word for They had to scrape out all the dead Tissue in order to Get down to healthy Appearing tissue and allow it to heal itself and so from September when they did the debridement to March of this year, I was still healing that wound. There was a wound vacuum in place and multiple antibiotics for infections and daily wound care, and it was just like a very exhausted, painful process. And I finally got in a prosthetic in December um, with the wound still in place, but the pain was pretty significant because there was bone that was protruding from the wound because mm-hmm. when they took all that tissue... It basically took all the padding away from where they had flapped the skin, and we just couldn't proceed with prosthetics. And even if the wound had closed, which it was doing slowly, the recurrence of ulcers in that area from pressure in the socket was you know, very risky, significant. So they wanted to change the anatomy to make it a better um, long-term option. Mm-hmm. So then I found out... Um, Probably about six and a half weeks ago, I found out that it needed to be reamputated, taken up like four centimeters higher, and completely redone. So uh, today's Wednesday, right? Yeah. Yes. yeah. So today actually marks the six week, um, six weeks ago. Today I had it reamputated. Yeah, and then felt pretty good. I got home like a day later, which was pretty great. And then three or four days later, I started to get really sick: high grade fevers, really weak, really tired, short of breath, coughing and um, I found out I had pneumonia and it kind of, as anybody would that's been in the hospital too much uh, pushed off, pushed off, pushed off until I was so sick that I was septic and had to be admitted to the hospital for antibiotics and fluids and thankfully I'm young and otherwise healthy and rebounded in a day or so but it took probably 7 to 10 days to get my strength and my wind back Um, I think that's one of the
0: few photos I've ever seen seen of you where you actually look like down and out, and I was really beat. sick. Yeah, I, was, were, I was I was circling the drain, it. it
1: was bad. Yeah, I haven't yeah. felt that sick, I don't think ever. I mean, I was uh, I just couldn't advocate for myself, I was just fe- curled up, fetal position, shaking, and just uh, you I mean, know, after the, the, all
0: you were through, it and was then bad to get like that sick. You must have just pneumonia
1: leveled me, yeah.
0: Well, but after like
1: a week, it was, I you know, yeah. and it's so funny because the more that you go through the more that you're grateful for which is wild you know like just the ability to be able to breathe and have the energy to crutch up your stairs to get to the shower Mm. the ability to even get in the shower because in three weeks I only had three showers you know I mean it's like just the small things you learn to really appreciate which is one of the great silver linings to all of this but I'm on the rebound it's been six weeks I've been back to work since I was back to work three weeks post amputation two weeks post hospitalization from pneumonia just expanded my hours I've been working out i Competed in an international CrossFit um, parallel division competition along all of this process. It started mm-hmm. a week before the amputation because I didn't know that that had to be done, and then I still competed in it every week for five weeks, and I ranked second internationally. So I go on to an online regional qualifier in May, and if I qualify top five, I get to go on Ontario, Canada, nice. which I think I have decent chances to do. So yeah. you know, I'm you still just keep coupling the bad with the good, and then you just kind of find your little homeostasis and keep plugging away positively yeah yeah but it's been a crazy ride
0: crazy is an understatement yeah yeah Um, I just had just a couple of like like uh technical questions (laughs) um because I know I didn't know this so this is as much for me um as much as like people listening that might be curious that, that I might not even know they're curious because um um one of them well it was to get amp- your leg amputated, do you remember my question to you? Where, um, I'm trying to think of how to like describe this, but um, you said that your because your bone, so they must have taken some lower bone and then turned it on its side and brought it back up to where they cut from, so that creates kind of a T, which is like a like you said like a bone buffer, like a little uh, instead of instead of uh, weight bearing on the end cut yeah. of a bone or they're, they're, they're weight bearing on a uh, on the side of it
1: yeah so your your bone if you, it would be like just think of like a dog bone yeah. a bone that yeah. dog would chew on you've got your hard cortical structure on the outside that tough stuff that's hard to break through and the center you've got the medulla which is that like mushy sort of stuff that's where the bone marrow is mm. It's the same for our long bones. So if you cut straight through from a horizontal or transverse plane, then you expose the medulla of the bone, the soft center, and you kind of have a a rigid end to be able to, when your skin is flapped over, to to weight-bear on. And the misconception in prosthetics is that people get a socket and they actually weight-bear on the end. They Actually, that weight is transferred up the limb, and most of the pressure points for their primary weight-bearing is along their... uh, the shaft of their either their tibia, which is their lower leg bone, if it's a lower extremity amputation, or their femur, which is if it's an above knee amputation. Right. It's not actually at the site of the amputation. But in an ertal amputation, they take some of the bone that's below the area that they've cut and they turn it horizontal and then they screw it into the bones that are vertical and it creates a U so that you can actually weight bear on the hard surface of the bone and you are covering the soft center of the bones that you've cut through, which
0: is I I understand if I understand it right was also uh, pretty crucial for you as well because you didn't want to you have circulation issues right so you don't want that compression that a um, a prosthetic that was uh, so if I understand again also if I understand right it would be the prosthetic would be squeezing your leg above the cut line right, and that's you'd be weight bearing on that like, right. like tension
1: and then it would and be so squeezing the blood out of specifically it
0: specifically you don't want that because you need all you can get for exactly
1: blood. and getting to that decision just getting to like we should do the early amputation was months of coordination between vascular surgery orthopedic surgery researchers out in Wisconsin I mean we Mm -hmm. contacted Dr. Turnipseed the man that's written the research on this in the country to pick his brain and go over a case review they did grand rounds on my case at at multiple uh, tertiary care centers I mean just the process of figuring out that procedure to do and the person to do it was so challenging Um, but thankfully we got into really good hands and this guy is uh, the real deal and and did a really good job. And
0: then, um, so then the other sort of technical question or point uh, is the wound itself um, becomes more like a, um, again, I I think I'm speaking for myself and I think what other people think, you know, imagine just an amputation, just like taking us like archaic amputation, you take a saw and you cut a frigging leg off. (laughs) But, what you and then you have this like open wound that's the diameter is the size of your leg, right? But they take this, so what happened was that they take a, a diagonal cut, and so there's skin lower, they take a diagonal cut of your skin
1: and your muscle
0: and your muscle, yes. Right, right, right. So they
1: start a little bit um, higher up in the front, and then they cut at a sort of diagonal down the back to include muscle, fat, and mm. skin, mm-hmm. and that flaps forward mm. and gets sewed in the front to provide a nice pad at the right. end of the stump to try to uh, decrease the pain and discomfort yeah. when the, the and, leg is actually so, in. And
0: a manageable wound. If well, you think you, about it, if,
1: like, you, if it's closed primarily, which means that it's closed with stitches, in theory, the only wound is really an incision. right? And then that really should heal within a number of weeks, and then the stitches can come out. Unfortunately, one of the you know, more risky concerns is that, that you get dehiscence, which is where the wound opens up because of undue pressure or uh, just the surgical you know closure, a stitches blow. Um, and, then, and that seemed to unfortunately be the case for me this last time was the front popped open. Hmm. Um, and so that's why I'm still healing a wound, but it's much, much smaller than it was the last time when I had fallen. Thanks. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. What a decision. Like, how, how do you...
1: It's life or limb. Yeah. I mean, at some point you get to a, a decision where you recognize that living in chronic pain and fear and being on multiple medications to maintain the patency of your graft and the ups and downs of, of emotion, the emotionality of this and the recurrent testing and the repeated doctor's appointments and hospitalizations and all of that can just go away if you get rid of a leg and instead into a prosthetic. And I, and I'm not going to downplay the challenges of that. I mean, getting a prosthetic fitting and going through prosthetics and getting the mechanics of it and a good team and all of the complications that can arise from prosthetics and the wounds and the pain and uh, the recovery. And all of that was a completely new world to me that I, in some ways underestimated genuinely until I got there in December. Um, but you just have to weigh the, the pros and cons. Was that like
0: a big um, reality yeah, check? Like yeah. a reality uh, like a slam? You know? Yeah,
1: I thought the hardest part was going to be recovering from the pain of my amputation. Yeah. And really the hardest part for me was, uh, well, it was a, a couple hardest parts. I think realistic expectations in life are really important. If you tell me that I'm going to lose my leg, it's just a matter of time, I can chew on that for a while mm-hmm. and then when I lose my leg, that's going gonna to be a little less painful. But through the process of the course of my treatment, I was told, you're going to be fixed. This is going to fix you. This is going to fix you. This is going to fix you. And Nine my, times. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you ride this expectation that ends up becoming just a big disappointment every time. And so not until the ninth or eighth surgery was I told, this is just for limb salvage. You really need to start considering um, amputation because it's just a matter of time. Yeah. And hearing it, as much as that was entirely painful, in the back of my mind, I knew it was a consideration. Mm -hmm. And I was really thankful that I was finally given some specific information about what the expectation was for me. And once I was given that, it was a lot more manageable to proceed in that direction. It was, okay, this is what's going to happen. I don't need to fight it anymore. How am I going to make this a positive thing? How am I going to transition into this lifestyle with, with as much grace And knowledge and uh, strength as I can. And for me it was linking into communities of people that would be able to be there for me through this process, giving myself perspective for people that had it much worse, that had multiple limbs amputated, that amounted to much greater than I was, and making some kind of lightheartedness about the situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a farewell party for my leg. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) A big group of people, hundreds of people came out for sort of like a fundraising farewell party. I had a I, at that point, had never had a tattoo, so I, I was sort of badass and got a henna tattoo on my lower extremity that was going to be amputated that said, like, farewell down it. And, uh, you know, um, took my leg on a lot of last excursions. I did zip lining with my shoes off so my feet could feel the air. I went to a bunch of different beaches and felt like the sand and the water and the seashells under my foot. I crushed 20 pounds of grapes in a oh, no. you know, big bin so I knew what that felt like. I made foot mold so that I had like what the mold of my foot was before. I mean I did all these last things nice. as a measure of conclusion before healthy. it. Healthy. Yeah. And I so I going into it I was ready. I was as ready as I could be I should say. Mm. But then you never really can prepare yourself for what it's gonna look like when you're laying in the bed and you wake up mm. and the sheet is flat in the area that your leg was. Mm. You know I mean that there's nothing that ever really can you can think you're gonna be okay and in that moment it's just a really real a real moment where you recognize your whole life is wow it's really just changed and now is the time that it's gonna actually get harder and the you know the complications of my hospitalization were challenging the socio-economic issues that were occurring concomitantly with all of this were a challenge to me you know my husband leaving suddenly. The lack of ability to be in work and the the significant medical bills that started to you know grow, and uh, you know all of that was a secondary issue. And then you know just trying to learn how to do life on one leg when your right leg is also affected and it's challenging to get around. And it's um, so for me, I thankfully I reached out to a CrossFit gym that was near my work and. I literally sent them a message the week that my husband said he was leaving, and I had gone to work. For, I was going back to work part time for the first time. It was October, the week after my one-year anniversary, and I went into work that Friday morning and I was devastated. And this was like out of left field. I, it just felt like I was getting my, you know, resilience back, and that the rug had just been swept from underneath me. And I went in my office, and I had you know patients lined up for the day. And I remember, you know, the nurse came in and she said, "Tina, how are you?" And it's just the worst question ever <laughs> when you're not Boy, it's good. So clear. <laughs> and so you know, just I welled up and, and just said, you know, my I, I think my husband's gonna leave me, and I'm I'm not okay. And yeah. she said, I'm canceling your patients. Your job is to stay in this room for five hours. And if your door is closed, I'm not gonna interrupt you. If it's open, I will. Unless it's urgent, I won't. You know, come to see you. You just need to be here. If there's anything critical that arises, and I'm like, thank you. And I use that time to try to apply for social security disability income to try to figure out how I was gonna refinance my car and reduce my debt and reduce my finances so that I could try to survive on my own. And I reached out to this CrossFit gym, and, and I think by my email verbatim said, listen, I'm losing everything, my entire life is unraveling, I just lost my leg, I'm losing my husband, I'm losing my home, I'm gonna to have to rehome my dogs, everything is plummeting, and I, if I don't get physicality and community right now, I really don't know if I can do this. And within 10 minutes, two of the main owners had emailed me and just said get was here. Just Everproven? Yeah, Everproven yeah, yeah. CrossFit and Dover. They emailed me immediately and just said, get here. Yeah, yeah. We'll take care of it, you just get here. And I started going four days a week and they accommodated me. They modified every single exercise. The whole just community enveloped me in, in love and support and it was really the life preserver at the what I was just gonna go under. You know, it really yeah. kept me afloat and between that and then just, you know, regaining some confidence and, you know, building those friendships and getting back into work and, you know, getting a handle on how to manage my wounds every day and a handle on just chronic pain management and and what that meant for me. Um, And and re-stratifying all of my expectations. I'm no longer expecting that I'm going to run marathons. I'm no longer expecting that I can hike mountains at leisure. I'm no longer expecting that when I have children that I'll even be able to carry them to full term being able to walk. You know, that I can teach them how to ride a bike because I can keep up with them. Mm. I'm just now setting my expectations that I'm going to try to not live in chronic pain. I'll walk at a reasonable pace. I'll be able to work with some modifications and live my life in a happy manner and define myself by something other than physicality, which has been my definition my whole life. Mm. So it forces you to really take a look at who are you without X, Y, Z that you thought you were. And it's a really good exercise because <laughs> we all are faced with that at some point And I just feel like mine's come a little bit premature Yeah, and, and, and
0: forced exercise.
1: Yeah. And I feel like you, you learn so much about yourself and the other secondary benefit is it's such a good filter for people in your life. Oh, yeah, it's that. like if you had, it's almost like you have a survey that you can hand out to everybody in your life that you think matters to you. And it's like, are you going to be here for me through hard times? Are you going to really care about me when I can't provide you with anything except for some emotional disturbance (laughs) when I'm not going to be graceful and I'm going to be completely needy and emotionally deranged? Are you going to be there for me? This is like an automatic filter for me. And so I've had so many opportunities, not only to grow amazing relationships with people that genuinely will and, and have proven that they'll be there but also to wean f- out and phase out the people that were just um, not people that necessarily needed to take up more of my time based on what it was that they could do for me emotionally and as a friend or what I could do for them even mm-hmm. um, and so that's been kind of nice too is to kind of lean lean things out and cut the fat off of uh, of the meat of the breadth of friends and grow the depth of friends better
0: uh-huh.
1: Um, quick shout out to Matt
0: Misho, Matt, Matt, Kate Stone, his wife, you know, Kevin, Christian like, uh, reached to a better gym, um, a better CrossFit gym. Ever proven has been,
1: I've been to a lot of CrossFit gyms. You know, I started in 2010 before there was really, there may have been like Seacoast Kettlebell and CrossFit New Hampshire that was in Manchester. And I started in CrossFit New Hampshire before all of these other CrossFit gyms had opened up. And because of that, a lot of the local gyms, I know the owners and I'm friends with them. And Mm. I would hop around and and they're all lovely gyms. But um, when I had my issues with my leg, at least initially, uh, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind for a lot of places. Everybody's got their own thing. And it's not a malicious thing. It's just the pace of life and business. Um, Ever proven has been emotionally, physically just socially so supportive of me since I started yeah. that, uh, I have never known a community like that yeah. in all of the CrossFit places that I've gone to.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, I think Matt is a, uh, um, he's, he's a genuine guy. You know what I mean? He genuinely cares. He's a businessman. He's wants to make money. He wants to have a successful gym, but he, uh, he, He push comes to shove, and not even it doesn't even take push comes to shove. He's a genuine guy. I mean, they have people that help someone. Yeah, they've got people that have
1: leg issues, and they'll coordinate going over and raking the leaves for someone's home. He came over my house uh, after all he's done for me at the gym. Came over my house a few weeks after my operation and just said, "Listen, I've got a couple hours. What can I do for you? I'm coming. So tell me what's going to be constructive." He fixed my snowblower he you know took out my uh, dump stuff he, uh, he i don't know he did like six different things in the house that were uh, he brought groceries over including like halo top ice cream and protein quest chips mm-hmm. like just things that were amazing indulgences i had never been introduced to and just spent time just hanging out talking i mean it was they're just really good character people and yeah. they a lot of them work in the medical profession right and have that perspective also and some of them are even ailed by some medical conditions themselves they understand what it's like to be on the other side of this and um, I think that they're going to be pleasantly surprised if and God forbid anything should ever occur to any of them that they're going to have such an amazing support because they've done so much for so many people that it's it's bound to come back to them and it's not but it's going to be a nice perk for them yeah yeah, for sure because I would do anything for any of them
0: Um, and now go back to when you were um at your job, and you it be, you found out your husband was going to leave you, and your co-worker, boss? Co-worker,
1: my, oh, the, nurse, yeah.
0: the nurse that worked for me. Yeah, so she came in and, and uh, said, stay in this room. <laughs> your job is to stay in this room for five hours, which interesting, but um,
1: it was I could have left at any time, no, but she was just yeah, trying no, to make me feel better. <laughs> your yeah, job is
0: to stay in there for five hours.
1: Um, so
0: how... like? How did you take that time? Like, what is it in you that that w- made you take that time to then be productive? Because that's you know you just said your world was literally falling out from under you, and you took that five hours and you fucking like made progress.
1: Yeah, I think it's as just, opposed to it was just wild. game. It was just game time. Yeah. I mean, I just had this quote. You know, I'd read a number of books and articles and and about people that have been through similar things, and it was the don't wallow in the why me but try to pursue the try me attitude Mm. and I just like that quote kind of popped in my mind and I I really had nothing to lose at that moment Mm. and I knew you know you've got like a barometer of how you are as a person and mine was crashing and I knew that if I didn't do something I was not going to be okay. And I don't know what that not be okay was. Self-sabotaging behavior, self-medication, institutionalization. Like I don't know what that could have been because I've never been at a low that low in my life. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was if I don't reach out and let people know that I'm not okay, which is completely not innate for me as a person. I'm a very independent, strong. I try to motivate other people to ask for help. Is like I'd rather you take out some teeth and keep them for yourself. I just don't want to do it. But I knew that if I didn't, that I was not going to be able to persevere. And so, you know, I come from a, a sort of rugged childhood. And I've had to persevere through some significant challenges and hurdles in my life previous to all of this. And I think that I've had a learned perseverance. And um, I was able to imprint a bit off of my mother's perseverance. She's she's quite a warrior herself. Mm. And um, I think I just adopted some of those behaviors that, you know, when, when shit hits the fan and you're circling the drain, I mean, you have two options. You can either crawl out or you can let it suck you in and no amount of kicking and screaming and self wallowing and self pity is going to change the outcome or the course of your um, path, but proactive, you know, strength and desire to try to get things better can and I did the opposite. I mean, this, was, this has not been a graceful, strong path. I mean, the first six, seven surgeries when I was told I was going to be fixed and I wasn't, I mean, it was brutal. And probably part of the reason that my relationship failed a lot was it was a really, really significant struggle to try to figure out how do you have enough hope that you're going to get through something, but not so much hope that if it doesn't turn out that way, you're going to be... Irreversibly devastated, but how do you be realistic and um, not cynical, but you know realistic enough that you brace yourself for the impact of what's not going to go well, but still maintain enough hope that you're going to be able to get yourself through things positively? Being in limbo is the very worst thing you can be. Having a diagnosis or having a definitive outcome, no matter how suboptimal. Is still something that you know is going to happen that you can deal with, but having something that's wishy-washy that you're not, you're unsure of leaves you in this state where you're not sure how to be, you're not sure how to proceed, you're not sure what action you can take because there's really none, and so you're stagnant, but you feel like you're overwhelmed because you there's so many things you need to do, but you can't do any because you're not sure how it's going to go. So it's a really overwhelming position to be in.
0: When did this balance like uh, come to such clarity to you, like like? It, has this when been uh, lost like uh, 80% everything. hindsight, 100% hindsight, 50% hindsight? From now? Yeah. Like like uh, when did you, when no. could you have verbalized this yeah. as you were doing it uh, mm-hmm. midway through your, you know, Mm-mm. sixth surgery?
1: When I lost everything, right? I lost my leg. I lost my husband. I um, was, I'm still looking at losing, you know, I have to sell my house. I just had to rehome my dogs. I everything that I thought was stable in my life, I lost back in the fall of last year. Then it was sort of a tailspin for a few weeks. I curled up in a ball. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I couldn't work. I was couldn't crutch around my house. I didn't have enough energy because I could hardly eat at all because mm-hmm. of the visceral response to the betrayal that I had just gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly it wasn't then. <laughs> <laughs> right <now? laughs> um, foreshadowing, right? Um, so I think at some point, I set out on a path to um, escape a little bit and do some traveling and surround myself with people that were going to really give me some happiness and Mm -hmm. some experience. And I decided that rather than waiting for timing to be perfect and to get a leg and to be more financially stable, that I would just seize every opportunity I could to get away and to travel and to do good things. And so I sort of had this crusade from mid November until, um, early January where I traveled to, um, Baltimore twice, Florida twice, New York for some prosthetics, Idaho to be with my best friend for Christmas, one of my best friends for Christmas, Hawaii for a couple of weeks. Um, And then when I got back from all of that, during the time I had done a lot of reading, a lot of internal searching, a lot of journaling, and was starting to grasp the concept of uh, just survivorship during Mm -hmm. that time. And then I think more so over... I'd say the last, so it's what, April? I'd say over the last three months Mm. with um, continuing to deepen the relationships with the people that I have around me, um, continued external validation of who I am as a person, the strength that I bring, the outpouring of love and support about who I am and the inspiration that I'm secondarily giving to people by just trying to persevere through my own life as gracefully as I can for my own um, outcomes, that all of that has been able to catapult me into a state where you just learn to not I'm reading a book I'm not sure how profane I can be on here as but much as you fucking I'm, need, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading a book right now calling The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck yeah. and a few other really good ones and it oh, basically heard, means yeah. you know, you've got a finite amount of fucks that you're born with and too many people give them to things that don't matter and I think that I gave them mm. to things that didn't matter for a long time and now I'm saving them because, you know, I've mm. depleted them. And I'm really trying to only give them to the things that genuinely matter. And mm. so right now that's my, my family, my friends, and my health. I was just
0: going to say, that's other people, interestingly enough. You know what I mean? It's funny how you as you as the, the more you discover what you're talking about, the more one discovers what you're talking about right now, the more you realize it has nothing to do with you.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. It's a good quote that... Um, people say like, you know, what other people think of you is none of your business. We get so caught up with what it is that we're perceived as and what people um, expect of us that we lose sight of what it is that we genuinely want. And so detaching from social media at times Mm -hmm. and being introspective and journaling and doing some really good reading and escaping from your environment. I mean, even if it's just your back porch for an hour a day or getting out into nature that's super healing. I mean, you think about it, we go from, especially in the winter, which was during the hardest part of all this for me, Mm -hmm. you escape... You don't escape at all. you're You're in one encased domain, your home, and you're briefly outside in the elements and then you're right in your car, which is, is an enclosed domain, and then maybe you get to work, which is another enclosed domain. and you don't have an opportunity to be out in the healing energy of nature. And so for me, during the, all of that travel, I, it, just the recharging of the sun and the the wind and the, it just it does something to heal you a little bit and give you that exposure to Absolutely. ground yourself. It's like a grounding energy. Yeah. Meditation has been huge for me. Um, you know some of these app, apps on you know your your phone and things that I've utilized and some exercises, just you know yoga practice, just anything that I can do to be more in tune with how I feel, and in trying to be introspective about how I'm internalizing what it is that's going on around me and recognizing that any emotional response that you have to anything around you is your own doing. No one can make you feel some way. Nothing can make you feel some way. You are allowing that thing to make you feel that way, and then in that you have the power. To change whatever your responses to the triggers that you feel like you have, mm. and so it's just about regaining the strength in being able to mediate all of the things in your life by knowing that you're in control of all of your own responses. And so it's been a really significant personal and development.
0: You're so super clear on it.
1: Yeah. So my brother cool. and I got tattoos. So I am not I inked. Saw that. We like. I have never. I would never consider doing tattoos. I think they look amazing. And I love the concept. Yeah, you
0: don't have to just say that. (laughs)
1: Because you're all tatted up, no. Don't worry. I'm pretty straightforward usually. I I think they look great. Um, I just, I never knew what I would want on me forever. And then it was really clear to me when I lost um, my marriage and I had to take off my wedding ring, it was a really strange feeling not Mm. having that ring on me that was on me for almost two years. And so I was searching for a piece of jewelry that would be some kind of a tactile thing that I could touch or hold at moments where I felt like I needed something tactile to just center me or ground me because to me, the ring always was, I could touch it and say, I've got a safety net. Someone's got me. I'm mm-hmm. home with somebody. I've got this blanket that's going to be able to envelop me. I would always joke that like, you know, being under his wing or his arm was like the, the cove for my ship. You know, it was mm-hmm. like, no matter what the waters are like, I'll, I'll get to the cove at night. And not having that was really challenging. So I found this really great metal-plated necklace that had two fast-forward, well, two greater-than symbols that looked like a fast-forward on it, and it just struck me, and I wanted it. You know, not only did it symbolize looking forward to the next chapter of my life, but also the spiritual, emotional, and physical development and the faster pace of which I was having based on all of the things I was persevering through. But it also looked like the back end of an arrow. And there was a saying that I was just reading on a bag that I was given a necklace um, in that had an arrow on it that said, the further you pull back an arrow, the further it shoots. So there was all of this symbolism um. that was wrapped up in this two greater than signs on this metal plate that was completely overpriced, you know. <laughs> and so <laughs> I bought it from and Fair in Boston. And of course, per my usual, I lost it because I'm terrible at holding on to jewelry. But the idea stuck. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was going to do with it. And uh, my brother came to me in... Um, January and said that his wife had been cheating on him, mm. and uh, he and I and he was turning thirty in February, a few three days actually after my birthday, and the two of us were in parallel going through Are the you same both thing. February? Yeah, sorry, Gabriel. What what day? He's the eleventh and the fourteenth. Oh,
0: seventh. You're uh, oh, February, Aquarius. Uh,
1: Aquarius. So uh, yeah, so I decided that I would take him to Foxwoods for the weekend. We'd escape. I'd let him, you know, we'd go down there, we'd do the spa for a while. I invited all of his friends as a secret to, like, surprise him for his 30th birthday and, you know, just get him out of the situation because I understood how that could be. And when we were at the spa one day, we were talking about this whole greater than sign, fast forward symbol, Mm. and he was just completely taken aback by the idea. And the two of us, which, you know, we hadn't spent a lot of quality time as siblings previous to this as adults because of just life. And um, we decided that we'd go downstairs and we would sign up for a tattoo for the next day. And we picked our designs. Mine's a very, you know, starter tattoo. <laughs> it's, entry, entry level. Yeah. Entry level. Just, yeah. you know, black, very small, two fast forward signs and an inconspicuous space on the side of my ribs. Yeah. Yeah. And he got a larger one down the middle of his bicep. He's got a sleeve. Well, the beginnings of a sleeve, I guess I don't know what you call it. It's just yeah. the forearm is done. Yeah. And he's trying to work up toward his shoulder. So he got a big one on his arm. It was this nice little like bonding experience. But, uh, yeah. So I took my, uh, my ink virginity and, yeah. uh, the symbolism in it is really great. Yeah, it is. Now I'm planning my second and third one, which I hear people do, and I thought, "No, no, no, I'll just get one and I'll See, be yeah, fine." Yeah. No, no, it doesn't no, no. Now I'm already People like, always
0: just get one.
1: Yeah. Now now I'm <laughs> staging the next few. I just got one. Did you? Yeah, I'm just not done
0: yet. <laughs> one big canvas. Mm. Um so I want to talk about a subject that I've been that um you've been talking about, but I want to hear your thoughts on it. And, uh, and, and that, uh, I've actually been thinking, and I wanna talk about this more later about the concept of you serving and your opportunity to serve, right? But um, I, I think, and I, I'm, I'm, I wanna talk about your experience with this and my observation around it, but this, and, and, and just to plant a seed randomly, could be a really cool opportunity because there's a gigantic need for it. And what I've been seeing, in you is, um, uh, you started off your journey, your, your leg journey, with being really concerned about scars. And you are, ha- and have always been a very physically, uh, centric, physical, physically centric sort of person, by your words. And, um, and, um, you know, it physically meaning like looks and stuff like that. And to let the audience will see a picture of you, but also just to let them know like you're gorgeous. You know what I mean? Like you're a beautiful, beautiful person and, and in great shape, like your body's amazing, all that stuff. So that's a huge thing. And so when you're saying and I'm just gonna say it all and whatever, right? But when you're saying I don't want to get scars I, I've known people like that, so every, you know, and, and I, I'll make a judgment when I hear something like that. Oh, that, you know, that person's putting looks first or whatever, and, and I, I don't even want to go down that road. It's more just like, that's a huge issue for women. Body conscious, body image is a huge issue for women. So when I spoke to your clarity of, about um, the, the clarity around your healing process, and your emotional well-being and then when i when i witness your growth and uh and i'm gonna call it healing around body image issues it's significant yeah it's really big so and it's really rare you know what i mean like like and i don't know i'm not i, I don't know what I don't even know that you had any. I just know you were concerned about scars. So I'm, I'm speculating, you know what I mean? I'm like...
1: Well, I'm a female. I mean, it's a good assumption to have. Right, sadly. I mean, when I was... I was a gymnast my whole life. Right. So it very physically yeah. uh, scrutinous. Yeah. I mean, body dysmorphic even right. if I had to right. be able to DSM myself when I was younger. I mean, it was like very hyper scrutinous with body image. It was, if you started to have any issues, it was someone spoke to you, you know, as a collegiate cheerleader, you had midriff, you know, cheerleading outfits mm-hmm. and it was like there was a significant emphasis on aesthetics. So that's been a huge part of my life. Right. And that's the reason that I declined the fasciotomy that the orthopedist, the first one had even recommended to me because of the incision and the scar. Right. But once all these things were done and I had them, I had to accept them yeah. and I had to recognize, and this is another quote, it's, they sound cheesy until you're in the situation you recognize yeah, yeah, right. the, the gravity of them but there was a quote that said, um, victims have, no, survivors have scars, victims have graves. Mm. And you can either choose to accept what you have and look at them as reminders of what it is that you've been through and life not breaking you. Or you can choose to look at them with self pity and apprehension. And for the first, admittedly for the first I don't know, a year, year and a half of this three and a half years surgical course, I wore long skirts, Mm -hmm. I wore long pants Mm -hmm. because I had a huge incision up my leg. But I don't know necessarily that it was as much about the aesthetic concern as it was the then prompting of others to then want to engage and conversate Mm -hmm. about what it was that I had been going through. And I wasn't at a point where I really wanted to have to have random conversations and interactions with strangers, which is literally on the regular these days. Oh, and thankfully yeah. I'm at an emotional point where I'm yeah, good yeah. with that because it's, I mean, strangers out of the woodwork just come out and we'll just ask you all of these very intimate conversations and, and questions. Um, and so it was to protect myself from having to have any of those. But um, now, I mean, where I lost my leg and I don't have the end of my, you know, I have no foot. The concept of having some scars at my legs and one on my arm is so much less... It's everything's perspective. Once you have something worse, a scar isn't so bad, you know? Once you lose a leg, you don't really care so much about your leg scar. But before I lost my leg, I did care more about my leg scar. So it's just uh, the fact that things progress to a point where now I have such a significant physical obvious deformity that a scar is nothing. And to be honest, I... I think scars are sexy now. I mean, if you can represent yourself in a confident manner and you have the opportunity to inspire other people, that's the bigger goal. It's not about the scars. It's not about the cuts. It's not about the how you look. It's it's now how you feel and what do you cause other people to feel like? And that's only a process of like the evolution of your journey. And uh, but it wasn't always that way. I mean, it took years for me to not feel subconscious about my scars. I remember going to a wedding and I had to wear the only dress that I had really and it was last minute was a knee length dress and I had these beautiful shoes which uh, were my old wedding shoes and you could see my scar from my knee to my ankle and I was just completely hyper fixated on it and every you know, picture that I took it was in a position where you couldn't mm-hmm. see it and it was just so emotionally burdensome to have to Constantly be in positions where I felt like I wasn't being able to show people because people's eyes will dart. You know, you'll talk to them and their Mm. eyes are on you. And then as soon as they see an abnormality, whether it's a tooth missing or it's a a blemish on your skin or it's a missing leg or whatever it is, I mean, the latter is obviously more obvious, but their eyes will dart to it. And you have this moment of like insecurity and, you know, lack of self worth and uh, I'm not the same. And I, you know, all these kind of self negative talk behaviors. But once you can pinpoint that that's what you're doing, you can start to get yourself out of that habit and start to appreciate what it is that makes you unique and the things that make you advanced emotionally because of what it is that you've gone through. But you have to learn to accept that in yourself. And it's a learned thing. It's a muscle that you have to grow over time. It's not innate. It doesn't happen immediately.
0: No. And some t- but and that's that's one of my like that's that's the, I'm trying to formulate a question and I can't even think of how to ask it. But it and it's not around you; it, it's around your thoughts on um, women's typically women's um, body issues, body image issues, and the lifelong, literally life. Well, I, I don't know, That's an interesting question. I never really thought about it. Like, pa- a woman past fifty past 60, do women still I know how ignorant I'm sounding right now, but like to a woman past 60, does she still have those like legitimate body image issues? I think that that everything morphs,
1: you know, when you're when you're in your teenage years it's, you know, oh, why isn't my you know, all, all this acne, right? Like why isn't my skin as pretty as Susie, the cheerleading captain? And then it's like, oh, I'll try proactive or it's like skin related. And then in your 20s, it's Oh, you know, my midsection well, I think isn't in as teens, thin. It's,
0: it's body too. It's, sure. it's size. And,
1: it may be. Yeah, you know. I don't know. Mine back in the day, I was a gymnast, so more of it was related to the blemishes because I oh, ate so yeah. much dairy. Sure. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, in your twenties, it's everything morphs, and you know, in your thirties and forties, and it's like wrinkles, and then in your sixties right, and seventies right. start getting saggy, and um, I think we're always going to have flaws. You have to not
0: give a fuck. You have to
1: learn to give less fucks. That's the whole point of this book I'm reading. And the whole philosophy I'm trying to adopt is that um, your wrinkles say that you, you know, your your, uh, crow's feet and things signify all the times in your life that you've smiled. Mm. You know, your furrowed brow lines are all those times that you're inquisitive and curious about things in your life Mm. or that you squinted because you had so much enjoyment and sunshine. Like you have to think about the things, the flaws as a result of the the things in life that you've done that have been great and not look at those things as bad things and Mm. learn to adopt a policy where when you look in the mirror, instead of looking at the one or two things that you don't like about yourself, try to focus on one or two things immediately that you like about yourself first. Mm. Then you can go on to the things you don't like. But if you always can challenge yourself, it's like the mirror challenge. Every time you see a reflection of yourself, immediately try to praise yourself for two things that you like first and then move to the things perhaps that you don't like and then they become less significant in your life. But it's all about how you perceive what it is that you're going on. I mean, you're always going to have body image issues, everybody, every person. But it's how do you learn to give less fucks about that and more fucks about the things that really matter, which yeah. is the family and the friends around you and the impact that you're leaving on society. Yeah. You don't learn to get there until you've been through hard things. It's sad, but it's true. I know. That, that, and I think that's
0: like the, right now my wheels are turning on like, how do you, how do you um, avoid that and or speed that up without... It's you just know,
1: perspective whether it's secondary and it's people around you that you witness hardship or you're in a line of profession where you get to see hardship from the front seat Mm. because of what you do or you personally, unfortunately, have to go through it. It's just perspective.
0: Yeah. And I guess if you don't have to go through it, there's there's the opportunity to serve. So, like, you know, if you have someone who... Um, hasn't had significant hardship if you give them, like I said, the opportunity to serve, they, they at least can start seeing things firsthand and develop perspective and gratitude. Because mm-hmm. I think it's sort of about gratitude. Because now I feel like you have gratitude, like you're, you're, you're gracious for what you have.
1: Yeah, it took a long time to start, um, to stop focusing on what I didn't have and start focusing on what I do have. And Mm -hmm. once I could do that, and it's not all the time, you know, not everybody's always, you know, that was too many double negatives. (laughs) 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 Everyone can't be positive all the time. And everybody can't be grateful all the time. And what I've learned to do also is to try to cut myself some slack. You know, I mean, we're not always gonna be perfect and we're not always gonna see everything through rosy glasses. And you're gonna have hard days, you're gonna have self-pitying days. But at the end of most of your days and the end of most of your weeks, if you can try to, for the majority, focus more on what it is that you do have and focus on what kind of impact you want to have and how it is that you're going to obtain that, small goals that are measurable that will get you there. Um, I think that overall your life satisfaction will be greater. You know, mm-hmm. I just received a message. You know, uh, I'm very fortunate that the community around me has been very, very supportive not only the athletic community through CrossFit, but just, you know, I I grew up in New Hampshire, and so a lot of people have heard my story. WMR did a couple of features on me. Um, My GoFundMe that people graciously had put out for me in the fall sort of circulated. And some of my videos on social media that I try to post you know sort of regularly about my athletic endeavors Mm -hmm. get around. And this morning, a, a friend from middle school messaged me and said, Tina, I didn't know anything that you've gone through I just want to let you know that uh, I woke up today kind of feeling crummy. I saw your video. You're a badass. I got myself immediately up to the gym and I'm feeling fantastic. I just want to let you know that my heart and soul go out to you and send you love and empowerment. Mm. And so many messages like that I get, like mm. on a, I wouldn't say everyday basis, but I mean, more days a week than not, I get a message from some completely unassuming person that sends me this message of uh, just, kindness because of what they've seen that in just seeing me try to live my life successfully or just fulfilling myself, which is usually just playing around and being a goofball, despite what it is them going through touches people because their life, they don't perceive to be as as challenging as that. And so if I can do more or be as happy as they can or happier, despite the fact that they feel that their issues are less significant, then that invokes a sense of encouragement to them.
0: Yeah. I think the the cool gift there that they, that they've given you isn't the, their hearts and thoughts going out to you but it's the cycle that you know that you're feeling now that they now she
1: feels good it's secondary inspiration yeah comes back to me and gives it to me and then you know everybody in life searches for a purpose you know it's like what is what's your purpose in life if someone asked me that five years ago I'd be like well uh, I'm gonna be a good wife someday and a good clinician and like all of these superficial things right like I mean Maybe a good mom someday. These are things that not even are tangible at this point. When I was asked, and now I feel like I've just been given this like wrapped little bow tied gift purpose Mm -hmm. in my lap, and I can choose to just uh, live my life um, quietly, discreetly, so no one knows of my struggles or my triumphs, or I can choose to live it a little bit more publicly and show some of the highs and the lows, and reap not only the secondary benefits of that inspiration, like you just mentioned, but also reap the benefit in knowing that there genuinely are people out there that are motivated by it. And mm-hmm. uh, I can't be more thankful or more honored to have uh, that kind of purpose because I feel like people struggle and search their entire lives for something that I've been just delivered. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. it is really cool yeah I mean it's terrible to have to to have to get to this point but once you accept that this is your fate it's either pony up or or just you know sink down and I feel like just by rising above and trying to make something of yourself despite your adversity you are causing other people to want to do more of their life and that's really really cool yeah yeah it's a good opportunity in a weird way you know understatement yeah yeah Blessing in disguise. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, I
0: haven't suffered what you've suffered. Um, And then I have, you know, I've suffered like tragic loss. And so, um, you know, that whole perspective, you know, conversation If someone came to me and said, would you rather have your sister murdered or your leg cut off? You know what I mean? It would be like a no-brainer, and it would be—it's uh, a uh, perspective's weird like that. You know? yep. Yeah.
1: Everybody, there, there are so many people that have it worse than me. Yeah. And uh, suffer what I call uh, silent um, mm. devastation. You know, something like that. People can't see. people don't know looking at you what you've suffered because of that people can look at me and and know the hardship and sometimes I I empathize sometimes with the silent suffering the things that go unseen that people don't know about the emotional struggles with things such as that significant loss Um, I certainly don't even know how I would handle that everything is absolutely relative
0: yeah it really is, it's crazy it's crazy I love, I love parts of your story about just the honoring every moment. Again, like your clarity. like You've been so clear with...
1: It takes a long time. Your, yeah, yeah, I guess it that's a lot part of, of it. I mean, I've sat on my ass for like how yeah. many months of the last three years in recovery you have to come to hopefully some decent conclusions.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you would hope. You would hope. Some people I don't think do, but good, good on you for doing it. Um... I don't think people quite know what you do right now
1: do professionally yeah oh I'm a vascular surgery PA right so I transitioned from hospitalist medicine where I worked in an acute care facility uh, in Manchester New Hampshire and once I was diagnosed I transitioned into a vascular surgery job so that I could try to navigate the waters and become the specialist for not only myself but my mother who has arterial issues Mm. and so I started at this job almost two years ago and it's not only a better fit from a um, you know, a subject matter standpoint, but also schedule-wise and fulfillment-wise. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, my ability to serve a community of people that are suffering from vascular issues just like I am mm-hmm. is very, very fulfilling. I mean, just before I came here today, a man came in who um, had an acutely ischemic leg, so a dead leg, and new diagnosis of metastatic cancer everywhere. And he was revascularized. I did surgery on him last week and he came in today because his foot is not doing well. It's dying and he's going to need an amputation. And I had to tell him today that he was going to lose his leg and that I wasn't sure what level he was going to lose it at, whether it was below knee or above knee, but we had to do some more testing in the interim. He's, he has, you know, scanning for his whole body that he needs to see if he has other areas of cancer because there's some suspicious concerns in his abdomen and, um, it, there was two significant parts to my self-fulfillment. One was a big old dose of perspective. You know, I've lost, you know, a two, a third of my leg or so, but I still have my health otherwise. Mm. Not, I don't have cancer. I have a very significant support. I have a, a great job. He is uninsured, does not have a supportive job, does not have a significant of a community, has metastatic cancer. You know, so mm. in direct comparison, it just makes me think, wow, your problems are not that bad. Yeah. And from a professional standpoint, I was able to empathize with him uh, dramatically, uh, support his family that was at bedside and his wife, who I was able to speak to on the phone. And then in a way see to-
0: somebody... That, that has been through it and, and is doing okay yeah. and, yeah, and right. can
1: say things beyond the usual clinical things like I'm going to take your leg off at XYZ and then do the whole, you know, brief, compassionate thing. I mean, it was more um, counseling, yeah. psychological counseling that I was able to provide to not only the patient, but the wife to say, you know, here's what to expect. He's going to be up, down, and all around. It's not a reflection on you. Mm. You know, he loves you. It's just he's trying to juggle this. The best you can do is just be completely understanding. Just be, you know, very, very flexible in your ability to receive all of the emotional outbursts that he has. You know foreshadow for these people exactly what it is that they're going to expect because the other clinicians, as much as they know the clinical side of it, and they see the adverse effects of what things, you know, what, what happens, they haven't lived it. They mm-hmm. don't know all of those other pieces that are so significant. Um, so I was, it felt really good to be able to be I the bet. person there for them today as, as terrible as it was that he's going through this. I genuinely feel that as a clinician I'm, I'm one of the better suited people to be able to help him handle this yeah. and help his family handle this. Um, so I, I feel like you I wish you had that. I've been fade. oh I hundred percent wish I had that. Yeah, yeah it's uh, through all of my surgeries it was very evident that it it was it was not their leg at the end of the day you know and and they tried to be as compassionate as they could and it's just the nature of the business that you have to remain objective and it's on to the next patient and it's no reflection of their lack of caring it's just there's only so much that they can absorb in their day because all they're seeing all day is morbidity and mortality but uh, to be somebody that can genuinely hold someone's hand while they cry a grown man while they you know cry on your shoulder because they're not sure how to tell their wife what's about to happen Mm. is a really uh humbling and honorable position to be able to be in so I definitely fell into the right line of profession yeah. I'm really lucky
0: yeah, yeah, so is everyone else yeah I hope so to you I hope so does it make you um, are you are you, you you've got to be entertaining uh, uh, more work in um, you know even inspirational speaking you know writing a book like really kind of helping? On a, on a broad scale. Yeah, so... Sort of, you know, anything from women's body issues, girls' body... Like, young girls' body issues would would be my vote.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm open to out. it. But as, well, I, also
0: just, yeah, people in general. Like, I'd
1: like to, you know, drop as many rocks into the pond and make yeah. as many ripples as I can, for sure. I mean, yeah. I'd love to make as big of an impact as I possibly can, but I, uh, I certainly have ideas for a book. Yeah. The name would be... Uh, Entrapped, my conditions, popliteal entrapment, and, and very uh, many compartments of my life, I felt entrapped because mm. of all of this, and that will be basically the the story of the release of the entrapment and and yeah. uh, flourishing thereafter. And uh, I have some ideas for that. I may need it co-authored because you know it's uh, people may be able to write it a bit better for me. So if there's anyone yeah. listening that's good at co-authoring, uh,
0: there are people that do it. Like, it's, there's, yes. that's a that's a big business. People Hit that can Chris hear your Dempsey story and help you, you if you want to yeah, co-author. Yeah,
1: I'll, I'll, Network, awesome. And um, I did my first. So, you know, public speaking hasn't ever been something that I thought that I would fall into. You know, the only large scale public speaking that I've ever done has either been in my wheelhouse, which is choreographing large groups of cheerleading Mm. or gymnastics, which is you know you own the room and you're the professional and you know the most in the room, or professionally in physician assistant school or or professionally in my jobs where you're speaking to audiences people that are some of them more of them are more smart than you and it's a little bit unnerving because yeah. you need to really be on your game and you yeah, know you're being yeah, scrutinized yeah, yeah. and <laughs> you know that's a little challenging Talk so your
0: insecure meter yeah. going red
1: <laughs> but um i had this opportunity i don't know what it was two months ago or so where um recycled percussion the lead percussionist justin spencer was coming back to new hampshire they're a Gothstown um originated band that basically huh. do percussion or um uh, it's essentially like a rock band where they use recycled instruments and recycled things. Oh, cool. And uh, the m- never heard of them. his mother, oh, they're great, Recycled Percussion. They have a, a show in Vegas that they actually do almost every day of okay. the year. They have their own headline tour there. And um, they're a really amazing charitable band. And they started a show in New Hampshire called Chaos and Kindness that just started airing this year where once a month they go to um, a different family in New Hampshire and they give back and give them some thing that's of significant worth to the family as a way to give back and they promote a lot of uh, charitable uh, community-based activities in New Hampshire which is really cool. I love it. Um and so his mother Justin Spencer's mother was a worked at Elliot Hospital with me and her and I've become pretty good friends and uh he was leading an inspirational rally at the Radisson in Manchester um right before the Super Bowl cuz they performed um at the Super Bowl before the show and uh, He, they asked me the day before to speak at an inspiration (laughs) rally and. I thought of a hundred reasons why I should say no. It was going to be immediately after work. I would have to rush over. I wasn't prepared. I didn't know what I was going to say. I'm not good at public speaking. And then suddenly Yes. I I yesed before (laughs) I could think. And then I said, oh shit, what have I just done? (laughs) I'm going to bore an audience with some rambling and I'm, I don't know what I'm going to even, I don't even know what my message is going to be. I have to work all day. I can't even prepare for what I want to say. Um, and I just threw myself into it and had no idea what was going to happen. Awesome. And I, you know, I met Justin, and he basically said, just you know, it was a 360 stage with over a thousand people in the audience. And I had never done this before, mm. and it was just before the main, you know, act was going to go on. Justin was going to come out, when wave the this? Patriots flag, probably two months ago or so. Nice. Wave the Patriots flag and play an awesome, like, you know, thing on the drums because he's an amazing drummer. Just his percussion is insane. And then get everybody pumped up and inspired for this chaos and kindness and for being good community members. And so, big act to go before, <laughs> you know. And uh, one lady spoke before me, kind of briefly, and then I went up and. You know, I've got two crutches, and so for me to stand for a prolonged period of time and also ha- hold a microphone, mm. I have to throw my left little nub up on one of my crutches, and it's kind of like what I call my power stance, right. yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is, right. and uh, hold hold the microphone, and I sort of blacked out and woke up like 15 minutes later saying, in the end, love yourself, love each other, be kind, and don't ever give up, mm. and then I sort of blinked twice someone was there to hand the microphone to and then the next thing I knew everybody in the audience was on their feet standing and clapping standing ovation and I just like welled up with tears and sat down next to Justin's mom and was like how was that she's like Tina this was, was insane and one of my main messages was you know when people are struggling or you sense that people are apprehensive or they're anxious or they're obviously going through some kind of ailment Try to be a good community member. You know, reach out, give them a hug, buy them a coffee, shake their hand, tell them a story, tell them a joke. Just do something to show that you are actively part of their environment, because Mm -hmm. that really does go a long way when you're suffering. I remember so many times that I would just coldly and emotionally devoid travel from my home to the... Pharmacy to get medications and just sit there in the chair, just a shell of a person. Get my prescription and go home. And there was no interaction. So many people I'd come into contact with. There was no eye contact. There was no communication. And it, I never mes- missed it or lacked it. But there were a few times where I had the opportunity to actually speak to people, and I recognized how important that interaction was in my sense of value as a as a person in a community. That I wasn't just this organism going through independently, but that I was part of this bigger thing. And it wasn't as often as I would have liked it to be. So that was one of my big messages to the group. And at the end, as I walked off the stage, just before the main act went on, there was a line of probably 20 or so people that lined up next to me to come over and to give me hugs Mm. and to tell me their stories and to ask me and to thank me for sharing my story. And I mean, it was like I've never felt that kind of sensation or fulfillment in my life. And then after that, there were. I was bombarded on social media with so many people reaching out about. I mean, because I got raw. And it was, you know, it was a few months ago when this whole divorce stuff was really fresh and selling the house was really fresh and the acute recovery was fresh and the post travel low sort of hit. And it was, you know, multiple occasions during my conversation, I had welled up and I had that sort of lump in the throat where mm-hmm. you're not sure if you're going to break out and ball or if you're going to be able to get through it. And I think people were affected by that because it was unfiltered and it was raw. And, um, the message was just don't give up, just keep going because life's like riding a bicycle, you know, to keep moving forward, you got to keep pedaling or you're going to lose your balance. You just have to keep moving. And at some point your movement's going to result in some kind of a path and you're going to get someplace and you never knew how you got there. You just have to keep going. And, um, people really took to that. So I I think that I'd like to do more of it. I don't know what the opportunity is going to be out there, but I think that they're going to present themselves. I think so too. They come out of the
0: woodwork. Yeah, And I think you'll be a natural. You'll be good at it. You'll be successful at it.
1: It's hard to not, it's hard to goof it up when you're just telling your story. Yeah. That's the cool part. I'm going
0: to, I'm going to share, I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. I'll share a very similar scenario. And I, and I wanted to say there's like, there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in just saying yes and just putting yourself in, you know, an uncomfortable spot, to say the least.
1: They say miracles happen outside of your comfort zone.
0: Exactly. And so, and once you discover that and you keep saying yes, there's a lot of growth that happens. Mm -hmm. So around my, um, around my sister's murder, um, my mother, uh, was moderating a, um, I can't remember. I'm trying to think of what it was called. It was at the State House in Boston, and it was a it was a conference. That's what it was. It was a a conference for professionals in the victim advocate world in Massachusetts. And so she was moderating the unsolved crime symposium. You know, like the the, the, uh, the that one clinic. There were several going on that day. And so she asked me to speak at the unsolved murder you know, go teach these professionals what it's like, you know, and, and that, that's it. That's the guideline. So do you want to speak on that? <laughs> you know, and, and so I just exact same thing. I just went, yeah, because you're asking me to. So of course I'm going to. And just, yeah, because I guess I have to because I understand the importance of it. It must have been, and it was going to be, my mother was moderating it, and there was one other person speaking and me, and it was, I don't even know how many hundreds of people out there, and, I, and it was probably almost a year away, well, not quite a year, but it was, it was quite a ways away that they were prepping me for and the guy says, make sure you're prepared, think of what you want to talk about, write it down. You know, and, and be really prepared. And if you know me at all, you know that's far fet. Like for me to like, okay, sure, I'm gonna take a lot of notes and I'm gonna be super prepared. So I I walked, I walk I was working in downtown Boston, it was at the that meeting was at the State House. I left, I walked through the park, and I'm walking through the park and I'm headed back to work and I out of the corner of my eye I see this young girl feeding pigeons. And Something about her physical appearance reminded me of my sister to the point where I immediately just said, "Oh, there's Kathy feeding pigeons," and I was and I was just thinking, "This is totally normal for me to like run into my sister randomly." Like, of course that would happen, and there she is. And it was all this thought is in an instant, and then in the same instant, I'm like, "That's unbelievable to me that I can come from a meeting." talking about my sister's unsolved murder and I can go walking through a park and actually think that I'm running into her that the, the, the concept that she is gone is unfathomable to me, that my brain tricks me into thinking that she's standing right there and so I immediately said that's what I'm going to talk about and, and that's the last I thought about it until I got there and I walk into this room and I sit down, and I'm, you know, we're at, you know, this table, this long table. I'm next to this woman, my mother's next to me, and we've got microphones. And it's just like, go. Okay, here's Chris. He's going to talk about his case. And I'm, and I'm like, obviously nervous. Um, but I just was, um, I remember looking out and just immediately saying, well, first, I'm just going to apologize because I'm going to swear a lot, and to, um, and then and I didn't apo- I apologize for swearing, and then I I started speaking. And I immediately just started bawling. I just like lost it. It was crazy and. I barely caught I barely got it back together and I just was like talking and talking and crying and talking and I'm looking out at the audience and people are just like bawling and like you know like it was and to speak to what you were saying like it was so raw it was so real and honest that it was just saying I got done and people just you know came up and was like that was the, you were the highlight of the day. Mm-hmm. This was the best thing we saw all day, mm-hmm. and it was because I was just so unprepared. That's the, mom- the moral yeah. of my story: never well, be just prepared. Just allowing
1: yourself to be raw and then Yeah, I just and I and I impactful. want. I,
0: I was very conscious. I didn't. I was like, I just that day I decided that's what I'm going to talk about, and I'm just going to talk about but, it yeah, as real impossible. as I can. Oh, it was incredible. It was,
1: what a liberating experience, too. For yeah. me, it was a really liberating experience.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah that's, what yeah, that's what I was saying before. Like, it was so freeing, so grow. It's like such a, a, a growth moment. Yep. Yeah. yeah, pretty intense.
1: It was intense.
0: But, uh, but you have a good opportunity for you and a lot of other people.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping to seize it. Yeah. I'm hoping more come along. Yeah. You know, trying to balance the process right now of just getting to that next stage getting you know the household getting in an apartment learning how to walk again getting to the point where i can get the prosthetic to be able to walk again resuming work full-time because right now i'm only at 32 hours right. and then trying to enjoy the summer as best i can as a normal human for the first time in three and a half years will be really cool yeah, yeah, right. get some concerts lined up right and, <laughs> you know I'm, I'm trying to plan it as as less planned as i can just yeah. room for You know, uh, being nomadic and just, yeah, spontaneity. And um, it will be amazing to be able to walk through my summer, um, ideally without pain or little pain. That may be a completely unreasonable target, but um, I'm looking forward to just having some normalcy in the next few months. Cool. So we're close, we're right at the brink.
0: Yeah, cool. Um, Well, what I'll do is I'll, um, because I don't, unless you can say it right now, I'll get some some, uh, links that I can include for people in my intro where they can start following you. So do you mean
1: through social media? Yeah. So people can yeah, like, watch so your journey. You have. I've got some really cool footage. Uh, a lot of it's physically um, centered, but there's yep. other stuff as well. There's wound stuff. So on Instagram, I'm TinaH214. Uh-huh. And then I have a public page through Facebook, which I need to update because... Uh, that's been a little bit slacking but it's Tina Godfrey Hurley H-U-R-L-E-Y yeah. And that's and Godfrey of, is E-Y, right? G-O-D-F-R-E-Y yeah, yeah. Tina Godfrey Hurley is my uh, public Facebook page and that's pretty much it I don't really have like a website or yeah. uh, anything else right now it's just sort of social media and more for the reason To try to keep people updated on what it is that I'm going through and hopefully inspire people each morning that if I'm doing some crazy monkey bar-swinging handstand stuff that people can get up and get their bodies shaking and moving, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, good, exactly.
1: Only when we repeatedly expose ourselves to annihilation is that which is indestructible found within us. It's one of my favorite quotes. There you go. So no matter how many pits you hit just remember that you'll become much stronger and your shell will grow much thicker. Yeah. So that's sort of one of the quotes that I go back to, that uh, you eventually learn to laugh off the hard stuff and yeah. become jovial in your approach to life. It's yeah. sort one of my take-home, yeah. if you can and laugh it, through it.
0: Yeah, and in the, same, in the same light, I feel like it also, and which I think you do a lot too, is you, you also honor the moments.
1: You need to feel and honor. grieve and process. Yeah. You shouldn't overlook it and try yeah. to push yourself into being positive that's not something you should fake you have to grieve and get through it and only after a year and a half of grieving and processing and really feeling the depths of the pain of what I went through was able to start to progress to this point but this is only after three and a half years I mean it takes a while and so being kind to yourself about giving yourself like you said the time to get to this point is just as important beating yourself up about the fact that you're not positive you're not accepting you're not this you're not that is a lot more self Deteriorating than doing any good. So, just taking time to sit in the suck sometimes is just as important as taking time to get your head out of the sand. Yep. Right on.
0: And I would, um, I'm trying to wrap up, but I keep thinking of things. But I'd also say, like, uh, uh, I would not, you you say that it's been like three years has been a long time, three and a half years has been a long time to go through certain things. But the amount of growth that I think you've gone through and the amount of kind of like, for lack of any other word enlightenment oh yeah that you've kind of found and your clarity i keep using that word but like that you've that you've come to is actually quick
1: it's only honestly been within not even a year yeah because it was really only after i lost my marriage that i did so much significant soul searching yeah. and so much just self reflection and travel, and journaling, and reading, and just uh, sponging all of the resources that I had around me, and mm. uh, so I can't even say that it's been a full year. Yeah. And I look forward to the next year and the year after that because you know my right leg is is has the same fate. Right. And so um, these lessons are not done being learned. We're right. all in a constant state of flux and a constant state of growth. And I feel like if I can be where I am after the last ten months that in the next two years how many more amazing chapters of that book am I going to have written uh, you yeah, know yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> cool all right Tina we did it thank you feel good feel good yeah thanks fun. for Gavin. yeah thank you for Gavin. yeah all right well love
1: well you. thanks good out much there. love to you
0: yeah. Well, there you go That's Tina Um, Pretty crazy, pretty cool Pretty strong Um, That was awesome I left that conversation super pumped I hope you liked it Uh, Keep an eye out for Tina doing good things out there for people She's going to help a lot Uh, all right well i hope you enjoyed it i love you all reach out leave a review wouldn't it be cool peace